Chapter 12 of Kangaroo by D. H. Lawrence. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Courtney Miller. Chapter 12 The Nightmare, Part 4. During the long journey up to London, Summers sat facing Harriet quite still. The train was full, soldiers and sailors from Plymouth. One naval man talked to Harriet, bitter like all the rest. As soon as a man began to talk seriously, it was in bitterness. But many were beginning to make a mock of their own feelings, even. Songs like Goodbye had taken the place of Bluebells and marked the change. But Summers sat there feeling he had been killed, perfectly still and pale, in a kind of after-death, feeling he had been killed. He had always believed so in everything. Society, love, friends. This was one of his serious deaths in belief. So he sat with his immobile face of a crucified Christ, who makes no complaint, only broods silently and alone, remote. This face distressed Harriet horribly. It made her feel lost and shipwrecked, as if her heart was destined to break also. And she was in rather good spirits, really. Her horror had been that she would be interned in one of the horrible camps, away from Summers. She had far less belief than he in the goodness of mankind, and she was rather relieved to get out of Cornwall. She had felt herself under a pressure there, long-suffering that very pressure he had loved so much. And so, while his still, fixed, crucified face distressed her horribly, at the same time it made her angry. What did he want to look like that for? Why didn't he show fight? They came to London, and he tried taxi after taxi before he could get one to take them up to Hampstead. He had written to a staunch friend, and asked her to wire if she would receive them for a day or two. She wired that she would. So they went to her house. She was a little delicate lady who reminded Summers of his mother, though she was younger than his mother would have been. She and her husband had been friends of William Morris in those busy days of incipient Fabianism. Now her husband was sick, and she lived with him and a nurse and her grown-up daughter in a little old house in Hampstead. Mrs. Redburn was frightened, receiving the tainted Summers, but she had pluck. Everybody in London was frightened at this time, everybody who was not a rabid and disgusting so-called patriot. It was a reign of terror. Mrs. Redburn was a staunch little soul, but she was bewildered, and she was frightened. They did such horrible things to you, the authorities. Poor tiny Hattie, with her cameo face, like a wise child in her grey, bobbed hair. Such a frail little thing to have gone sailing these seas of ideas, and to suffer the awful breakdown of her husband. A tiny little woman with grey, bobbed hair and wide, unyielding eyes. She had three great children. It all seemed a joke and a tragedy mixed to her and now the war. She was just bewildered and would not live long. Poor, frail, tiny Hattie, receiving the summers into her still, tiny old house. Both Richard and Harriet loved her. He had pledged himself, in some queer way, to keep a place in his heart for her forever, even when she was dead, which he did. But he suffered from London. It was cold, heavy, foggy weather, and he pined for his cottage, the granite-strewn, gorse-grown slope from the moors to the sea. He could not bear Hampstead Heath now. In his eyes he saw the farm below, grey, naked, stony, with the big pale-roofed new barn, and the network of dark green fields with the pale grey walls, and the gorse and the sea. Torture of nostalgia. He craved to be back. His soul was there. He wrote passionately to John Thomas. Richard and Harriet went to a police station for the first time in their lives. They went and reported themselves. The police at the station knew nothing about them and said they needn't have come. But next day a great policeman thumping at Hattie's door, 
and were some people called Summer staying there. It was explained to the policeman that they had already reported, but he knew nothing of it. Summers wanted as quickly as possible to find rooms to take the burden from Hattie. The American wife of an English friend, a poet serving in the army, offered her rooms in Mecklenburg Square, and the third day after their arrival in London, Summers and Harriet moved there, very grateful indeed to the American girl. They had no money, but the young woman tossed the rooms to them and food and fuel with a wild free hand. She was beautiful, reckless, one of the poetesses whose poetry Richard feared and wondered over. Started a new life, anguish of nostalgia for Cornwall from Summers, wandering in the King's Cross Road or Theobald's Road, seeing his cottage and the road going up to the moors. He wrote twice to the headquarters at Salisbury, insisting on being allowed to return. Came a reply, this could not be permitted. Then one day a man called and left a book with the little bundle of papers, a handful only, which the detectives had confiscated. A poor little show. Even the scrap of paper with vermilion. Again, Summers wrote, but to no effect. Came a letter from John Thomas describing events in the West, the last Summers ever had from his friend. Then Sharp came up to London. It was too lonely down there, and they had some gay evenings. Many people came to see Summers, but Sharp said to him, They're watching you still. There were two policemen near the door watching who came in. There was an atmosphere of terror all through London, as under the Tsar when no man dared open his mouth. Only this time it was the lowest orders of mankind spying on the upper orders to drag them down. One evening there was a gorgeous commotion in Summer's rooms. Four poets and three non-poets, all fighting out poetry, a splendid time. Summers ran down the stairs in the black dark, no lights in the hall, to open the door. He opened quickly, three policemen in the porch. They slipped out before they could be spoken to. Harriet and Summers had reported at Bow Street. Wonderful how little heed the police took of them. Summers could tell how the civil police loathed being under the military orders. But watched and followed, he knew he was. After two months, the American friend needed her rooms. The Summers transferred to Kensington, to a flat belonging to Sharp's mother. Again, many friends came. One evening, Sharp was called out from the drawing room, detectives in the hall inquiring about Summers, where he got his money from, etc., etc., such clowns, louts, mongols of detectives. Even Sharp laughed in their faces. Such canay. At the same time, detectives inquiring for them at the old address, though they had reported the change. Such a confusion in the official mind. It was becoming impossible. Summers wrote bitterly to friends who had been all influential till lately, but whom the canai were now trying to taint also. And then he and Harriet moved to a little cottage he rented from his dear Hattie in Oxfordshire. Once more they reported to the police in the market town. Once more the police sympathetic. I will report no more, said Summers. But still he knew he was being watched all the time. Strange men questioning the cottage woman next door as to all his doings. He began to feel a criminal. A sense of guilt, of self-horror began to grow up in him. He saw himself set apart from mankind, a cane or worse. Though of course he had committed no murder, but what might he not have done? A leper, a criminal. The foul, dense, carrion-eating mob were trying to set their teeth in him, which meant mortification and death. It was Christmas, winter, very cold. He and Harriet were very poor. Then he became ill. He lay in the tiny bedroom looking at the wintry sky and the deep thatched roof of the cottage beyond, sick. But then his soul revived. No, he said to himself, no. Whatever I do or have done, I am not wrong. Even if I commit what they call a crime, 
Why should I accept their condemnation or verdict? Whatever I do, I do of my own responsible self. I refuse their imputations. I despise them. They are canai, carrion-eating, filthy-mouthed canai, like dead men devouring jackals. I wish to God I could kill them. I wish I had power to blight them, to slay them with a blight, to slay them in thousands and thousands. I wish to God I could kill them off, the masses of canai. Would they make me feel in the wrong? Would they? They shall not. Never. I will watch that they never set their unclean teeth in me, for a bite is blood poisoning. But fear them. Feel in the wrong because of them? Never. Not if I were Cain several times over and had killed several brothers and sisters as well. Not if I had committed all the crimes in their calendar. I will not be put in the wrong by them. God knows I will not. And I will report myself no more at their police stations. So, whenever the feeling of terror came over him, the feeling of being marked out, branded, a criminal marked out by society, marked out for annihilation, he pulled himself together, saying to himself, I am letting them make me feel in the wrong. I am degrading myself by feeling guilty, marked out, and I have convulsions of fear. But I am not wrong. I have done no wrong, whatever I have done. That is, no wrong that society has to do with. Whatever wrongs I have done are my own, and private between myself and the other person. One may be wrong, yes, one is often wrong, but not for them to judge. For my own soul only to judge. Let me know them for human filth, all these pullers down, and let me watch them, as I would watch a reeking hyena, but never fear them. Let me watch them to keep them at bay, but let me never admit for one single moment that they may be my judges. That never. I have judged them, they are canai. I am a man, and I abide by my own soul. Never shall they have a chance of judging me. So he discovered the great secret, to stand alone as his own judge of himself, absolutely. He took his stand absolutely on his own judgment of himself. Then the mongrel-mouthed world would say and do what it liked. This is the greatest secret of behavior, to stand alone and judge oneself from the deeps of one's own soul. And then, to know, to hear what the others say and think, to refer their judgment to the touchstone of one's own soul judgment, to fear one's own inward soul, and never to fear the outside world, nay, not even one single person, nor even fifty million persons. To learn to be afraid of nothing but one's own deepest soul, but to keep a sharp eye on the millions of the others. Summers would say to himself, there are fifty million people in Great Britain, and they would nearly all be against me let them. So a period of quiet followed. Summers got no answers to his letters to John Thomas. It was like the evening when he had been kept waiting. The man was scared. It was an end. And the authorities still would allow of no return to Cornwall. So let that be an end, too. He wrote for his books and household linen to be sent up. The rest could be sold. Bitter, in Oxfordshire, to unpack the things he had loved so dearly in Cornwall. Life would never be quite the same again. Then let it be otherwise. He hardened his heart and his soul. It was a lovely spring, and here in the heart of England, Shakespeare's England, there was a sweetness and a humanness that he had never known before. The people were friendly and unsuspicious, though they knew all about the trouble. The police, too, were delicate and kindly. It was a human world once more, human and lovely, though the gangs of woodmen were cutting down the trees, burying the beautiful spring woods making logs for trench props. And there was always the suspense of being once more called up for military service. 
But surely, thought Summers, if I am so vile, they will be glad to leave me alone. Spring passed on. Summers' sisters were alone, their husbands at the war. His younger sister took a cottage for him in their own bleak Derbyshire, and so he returned after six years to his own country. A bitter stranger, too, he felt. It was northern, and the industrial spirit was permeated through everything, the alien spirit of coal and iron. People living for coal and iron, nothing else. What good was it all? This time he would not go to the police station to report. So one day a police inspector called, but he was a kindly man and a little bitter too. Strange that among the civil police, everyone that Summers met was kindly and understanding, but the so-called brand new military, they were insolent jackanapes, especially the stay-at-home military who had all the authority in England. In September, on his birthday, came the third summons, on His Majesty's service. His Majesty's service, God help us. Summers was bidden present himself at Derby on a certain date, to join the colours. He replied, If I am turned out of my home and forbidden to enter the area of Cornwall, if I am forced to report myself to the police wherever I go and am treated like a criminal, you surely cannot wish me to present myself to join the colours. There was an interval, much correspondence with Bodmin, where they seemed to have forgotten him again. Then he received a notice that he was to present himself as ordered. What else was there to do? But he was growing devilish inside himself. However, he went, and Harriet accompanied him to the town. The recruiting place was a sort of big Sunday school. You went down a little flight of steps from the road. In a smallish ante-room, like a basement, he sat on a form and waited while all his papers were filed. Beside him sat a big collier, about as old as himself, and the man's face was a study of anger and devilishness growing under humiliation. After an hour's waiting, Summers was called. He stripped as usual, but this time was told to put on his jacket over his complete nakedness. And so he was shown into a high, long schoolroom, with various sections down one side, bits of screens where various doctor fellows were performing, and opposite, a long writing table where clerks and old military buffers in uniform sat in power, the clerks dutifully scribbling, glad to be in a safe job, no doubt, the old military buffers staring about. Near this judgment day, table, a fire was burning, and there was a bench where two naked men sat ignominiously, waiting, trying to cover their nakedness a little with their jackets, but too much upset to care, really. Good God, thought Summers. Naked civilized men in their Sunday jackets and nothing else make the most heaven-forsaken sight I have ever seen. The big stark naked collier was being measured, a big gaunt naked figure with a gruesome sort of nudity. Oh God, oh God, thought Summers, why do the animals none of them look like this? It doesn't look like life, like a living creature's figure. It is gruesome with no life meaning. In another section, a youth of about twenty-five, stark naked too, was throwing out his chest while a chit of a doctor fellow felt him between the legs. This naked young fellow evidently thought himself an athlete, and that he must make a good impression, so he threw his head up in a would-be noble attitude, and coughed bravely when the doctor buffoon said cough, like a piece of furniture waiting to be sat on. The athletic young man looked. Across the room the military buffers looked on at the operette. Occasionally a joke, incomprehensible, at the expense of the naked, was called across from the military papas to the fellows who may have been doctors. The place was full of an indescribable tone of jeering, jibing, shamelessness. Summer stood in his street jacket and thin legs and beard, aside enough for any gods, and waited his turn. Then he took off the jacket and was cleanly naked, and stood to be measured and weighed, being moved about like a block of meat, 
in the atmosphere of corrosive derision. Then he was sent to the next section for eye tests, and jokes were called across the room. Then after a time to the next section, where he was made to hop on one foot, then on the other foot, bend over, and so on, apparently to see if he had any physical deformity. In due course to the next section, where a fool of a little fellow, surely no doctor, eyed him up and down and said, "'Anything to complain of?' "'Yes,' said Summers. "'I've had pneumonia three times and been threatened with consumption. "'Oh, go over there, then.' So in his stalky ignominious nakedness, he was sent over to another section, where an elderly fool turned his back on him for ten minutes before looking round and saying, "'Yes, what have you to say?' Summers repeated. "'When did you have pneumonia?' Summers answered. He could barely speak. He was in such a fury of rage and humiliation. "'What doctor said you were threatened with consumption? Give his name.' This in a tone of sneering skepticism. The whole room was watching and listening. Summers knew his appearance had been anticipated, and they wanted to count him out, but he kept his head. The elderly fellow then proceeded to listen to his heart and lungs with a stethoscope, jabbing the end of the instrument against the flesh as if he wished to make a pattern on it. Summers kept a set face. He knew what he was out against, and he just hated and despised them all. The fellow at length threw the stethoscope aside as if he were throwing Summers aside and went to write. Summers stood still, with a set face, and waited. Then he was sent to the next section, and the stethoscoping doctor strolled over to the great judgment table. In the final section was a young puppy, like a chemist's assistant, who made most of the jokes. Jokes were all the time passing across the room, but Summers had the faculty of becoming quite deaf to anything that might disturb his equanimity. The chemist assistant puppy looked him up and down with a small grin as if to say, Law, Lummy, what a sight of a human scarecrow. Summers looked him back again, under lowered lids, and the puppy left off joking for the moment. He told Summers to take up other attitudes. Then he came forward close to him, right till their bodies almost touched, the one in a navy blue surge, holding back a little as if from the contagion of the naked one. He put his hand between Summers' legs and pressed it upwards under the genitals. Summers felt his eyes going black. "'Cough,' said the puppy. He coughed. "'Again,' said the puppy. He made a noise in his throat, then turned aside in disgust. "'Turn round,' said the puppy. "'Face the other way.' Summers turned and faced the shameful monkey faces at the long table. So he had his back to the tall window, and the puppy stood plumb behind him. "'Put your feet apart,' he put his feet apart. "'Bend forward. Further. Further.' Summers bent forward, lower, and realized that the puppy was standing aloof behind him to look into his anus, and that this was the source of the wonderful jesting that went on all the time. That will do. Get your jacket and go over there. Summers put on his jacket and went and sat on the form that was placed endwise at the side of the fire, facing the side of the judgment table. The big, gaunt collier was still being fooled. He apparently was not very intelligent, and didn't know what they meant when they told him to bend forward. Instead of bending with stiff knees, not knowing at all what they wanted, he crouched down, squatting on his heels as colliers do, and the doctor puppy, amid the hugest amusement, had to start him over again. So the game went on, and Summers watched them all. The collier was terrible to him. He had a sort of Irish face with a short nose and a thin black head. This snub-nosed face had gone quite blank with a ghastly voidness, void of intelligence, bewildered, and blind. It was as if the big, ugly, powerful body could not obey words any more. Oh, God, such an ugly body, not as if it belonged to a living creature. Summers kept himself hard and in command, face set, eyes watchful. He felt his cup had been filled now. 
He watched these buffoons in this great room, as he sat there naked save for his jacket, and he felt that from his heart, from his spine went out vibrations that should annihilate them, blot them out, the canaille, stamp them into the mud they belonged to. He was called at length to the table. "'What is your name?' asked one of the old parties. Summers looked at him. "'Summers,' he said in a very low tone. "'Summers. Richard Lovett?' with an indescribable sneer. Richard Lovett realized that they had got their knife into him. So, he had his knife in them, and it would strike deeper at last. "'You describe yourself as a writer,' he did not answer. "'A writer of what?' with a perfect sneer. "'Books. Essays.' The old buffer went on writing. Oh, yes, they intended to make him feel they had got their knife into him. They would have his beard off, too. But would they? He stood there with his ridiculous thin legs in his ridiculous jacket, but he did not feel a fool. Oh, God, no. The white composure of his face, the slight lifting of his nose like a dog's disgust, the heavy, unshakable watchfulness of his eyes brought even the judgment table to silence, even the puppy doctors. It was not till he was walking out of the room, with his jacket about his thin legs, and his beard in front of him, that they lifted their heads for a final jeer. He dressed and waited for his card. It was Saturday morning, and he was almost the last man to be examined. He wondered what instructions they had had about him. Oh, foul dogs. But they were very close on him now, very close. They were grinning very close behind him, like hyenas just going to bite. Yes, they were running him to earth. They had exposed all his nakedness to jibes, and they were pining, almost whimpering to give the last grab at him, and haul him to earth, a victim, finished. But not yet, oh no, not yet, not yet, not now, nor ever. Not while life was life should they lay hold of him, never again, never would he be touched again. And because they had handled his private parts and looked into them, their eyes should burst, and their hands should wither, and their hearts should rot. So he cursed them in his blood, with an unremitting curse, as he waited. They gave him his card, C2, fit for non-military service. He knew what they would like to make him do. They would like to seize him and compel him to empty latrines in some camp. They had that in mind for him, but he had other things in mind. He went out into a cursed derby to Harriet. She was reassured again, but he was not. He hated the Midlands now, he hated the North. They were viler than the South, even than Cornwall. They had a universal desire to take life and down it, these horrible machine people, these iron and coal people. They wanted to set their foot absolutely on life, grind it down and be master. Masters, as they were of their foul machines. Masters of life, as they were masters of steam power and electric power and, above all, of money power. Masters of money power with an obscene hatred of life, true spontaneous life. Another flight. He was determined not to stop in the Derby military area. He would move one stage out of their grip, at least. So he and Harriet prepared to go back with their trunks to the Oxfordshire cottage which they loved. He would not report, nor give any sign of himself. Fortunately, in the village everybody was slack and friendly. Derby had been a crisis. He would obey no more, not one more stride. If they summoned him he would disappear, or find some means of fighting them. But no more obedience no more presenting himself when called up. By God, no. Never while he lived, again, would he be at the disposal of society. So they moved south, to be one step removed. They had been living in this remote cottage in the Derbyshire hills, and they must leave at half-past seven in the morning to complete their journey in a day. 
It was a black morning with a slow dawn. Summers had the trunks ready. He stood looking at the dark gulf of the valley below. Meanwhile, heavy clouds sank over the bare Derbyshire hills, and the dawn was blotted out before it came. Then broke a terrific thunderstorm, and hail lashed down with a noise like insanity. He stood at the big window over the valley and watched. Come hail, come rain, he would go. Forever. This was his home district, but from the deepest soul he now hated it, mistrusted it even more than he hated it. As far as life went, he mistrusted it utterly with a black soul. Mistrusted it and hated it, with its smoke and its money power and its squirming millions who aren't human anymore. Ah, how lovely the Southwest seemed after it all. There was hardly any food, but neither he nor Harriet minded. They could pick up and be wonderfully happy again, gathering the little chestnuts in the woods and the few last bilberries. Men were working harder than ever felling trees for trench timber, denuding the land. But their brush fires were burning in the woods, and when they had gone in the cold dusk, Summers went with a sack to pick up the unburnt faggots and the great chips of wood the axes had left golden against the felled logs. Flakes of sweet, pale gold oak. He gathered them in the dusk in a sack, along with the other poor villagers, for he was poorer even than they. Still, it made him very happy to do these things, to see a big, glowing pile of wood flakes in his shed, and to dig the garden, and set the rubbish burning in the late, wistful autumn, or to wander through the hazel copses, away to the real old English hamlets, that are still like Shakespeare, and like Hardy's woodlanders. Then in November, the armistice. It was almost too much to believe. The war was over. It was too much to believe. He and Harriet sat and sang German songs in the cottage that strange night of the armistice, away there in the country, and she cried, and he wondered what now, now the walls would come no nearer. It had been like Edgar Allan Poe's story of the pit and the pendulum, where the walls come in, 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 till the prisoner is almost squeezed. So the black walls of the war, and he had been trapped, and very nearly squeezed into the pit where the rats were. So nearly, so very nearly. And now the black walls had stopped, and he was not pushed into the pit, and the rats, and he knew it in his soul. What next then? He insisted on going back to Derbyshire. Harriet, who hated him for the move, refused to go, so he went alone, back to his sisters, and to finish the year in the house which they had paid for him. Harriet refused to go. She stayed with Hattie in London. At St. Pancras, as Summers left the taxi and went across the pavement to the station, he fell down, fell smack down on the pavement. He did not hurt himself, but he got up rather dazed, saying to himself, Is that a bad omen? Ought I not to be going back? But again he thought of Scipio Africanus, and went on. The cold black December days, alone in the cottage on the cold hills, Adam Bede country, snowfields, Dinah Morris's home, such heavy, cold, savage, frustrated blackness. He had known it when he was a boy. Then Harriet came, and they spent Christmas with his sister. And when January came, he fell ill with the influenza, and was ill for a long time. In March, the snow was up to the windowsills of their house. Will the winter never end? he asked his soul. May brought the year's house rent of the Derbyshire cottage to an end, and back they went to Oxfordshire. But now the place seemed weary to him, tame, after the black iron of the north. The walls had gone, and now he felt nowhere. So they applied for passports. Harriet to go to Germany, himself to Italy. A lovely summer went by, a lovely autumn came. But the meaning had gone out of everything for him. He had lost his meaning. England had lost its meaning for him. The free England had died, 
This England of the peace was like a corpse. It was the corpse of a country to him. In October came the passports. He saw Harriet off to Germany, said goodbye at the Great Eastern Station, while she sat in the Harwich hook of Holland Express. She had a look of almost vindictive triumph and almost malignant love as the train drew out, so he went back to his meaninglessness at the cottage. Then, finding the meaninglessness too much, he gathered his few pounds together and in November left for Italy, left England, England which he had loved so bitterly, bitterly, and now was leaving alone, and with a feeling of expressionlessness in his soul. It was a cold day. There was snow on the downs like a shroud. And as he looked back from the boat, when they had left Folkestone behind and only England was there, England looked like a grey, dreary grey coffin sinking in the sea behind, with her dead grey cliffs and the white, worn-out cloth of snow above. Memory of all this came on him so violently, now in the Australian night, that he trembled helplessly under the shock of it. He ought to have gone up to Jack's place for the night, but no, he could not speak to anybody. Of all the black throng in the dark Sydney streets, he was the most remote. He strayed round in a torture of fear, and then at last suddenly went to the Carlton Hotel, got a room, and went to bed to be alone and think. Detail for detail he thought out his experiences with the authorities during the war, lying perfectly still and tense. Till now he had always kept the memory at bay, afraid of it. Now it all came back, in a rush. It was like a volcanic eruption in his consciousness. For some weeks he had felt the great uneasiness in his unconscious. For some time he had known spasms of that same fear that he had known during the war, the fear of the base and malignant power of the mob-like authorities. Since he had been in Italy, the fear had left him entirely. He had not even remembered it in India. Only in the quiet of Kui, strangely enough, it had come back in spasms, the dread, almost the horror of democratic society, the mob. Harriet had been feeling it too. Why? Why in this free Australia? Why? Why should they both have been feeling this same terror and pressure that they had known during the war? Why should it have come on again in Mullumbimby? Perhaps in Mullumbimby they were suspect again, two strangers, so much alone. Perhaps the Secret Service was making investigations about them. Ah, can I? Richard faced out all his memories like a nightmare in the night, and cut clear. He felt broken off from his fellow men. He felt broken off from the England he had belonged to. The ties were gone. He was loose like a single timber of some wrecked ship, drifting over the face of the earth. Without a people, without a land, so be it. He was broken apart, a part he would remain. End of chapter 12. The Nightmare. Part 4.